Hi everyone and welcome again to our new podcast series called Revelation Hour in Focus. I am joined again with Martin Wittock, which write the book End Time Again. Last time around, we spoke about his book. You probably know the guy by now. I'm not going to do an introduction again. But we really looked into very, very important topic of his book, such as the New Testament belief in the second coming. We also touched on the church versus the Jews or dear does the church replace the Jews as well which I was fascinating to hear Martin's point of view on this one we also mentioned about the Christian emperor in the end times we spoke about the Vikings you know those who don't know about the Vikings please just get your book your history book out and just find out in those times they believe that Vikings could be agents of the Antichrist so pick it up uh, on this week's uh, topic, we're going to look from the crusade all the way to the 18th century. And Martin is here with me again to talk about it. So, Martin, you know, we, we, we kind of end up abruptly last time around because we needed to. And now picking up on the second podcast here, you know, the crusades. This is the major, major, major thing. I mean, I remember growing up in France and, and, and in Tamil learning a history book and the history teacher it was all about the crusade so what is the relationship between the end times and the crusades well as you said we we finished at the end of the first millennium the year 1000 and although christ did not come at that time as many people thought he would do or in 1033 when some people thought he might come when they recalibrated there was a huge end times excitement and so the crusades really tapped into that the crusades were a series of military adventures that ran from about 1096 until 1270 at their simplest first crusade right through to the eighth crusade and as a result of this extraordinary movement control of jerusalem was temporarily wrested from its islamic rulers and a christian kingdom of jerusalem established along with a series of other crusader states and the astonishing success of the first crusade which was a western response to a call for assistance from the hard-pressed byzantine empire made many of those involved feel they were taking part in a divinely sanctioned activity that would accelerate the coming of Christ's kingdom on earth. So, and that's, it that, also that's, struck, yeah. so that was the reason. It was basically the reason that they wanted to see the, the, king, the kingdom of God on earth, the acceleration of the kingdom of God on earth. Is that the reason they, the Mendel's Crusade? Yes, yes. Th- there already was a heightened excitement around the year 1000 that it was a significant time. Uh, it was a century later, uh, but still relatively close to that, that the First Crusade occurred. Uh, people had believed for a while that uh, Islamic forces might be the agent of Antichrist. They believed in the last emperor, as we mentioned uh, in the first podcast, who would lead Christian armies to Jerusalem. And so when Pope Urban II launched the crusading movement at the Council of Clermont in November 1095, he was pushing on an open door as far as religious, apocalyptic, end times enthusiasm was concerned. And we can see this because shortly before 1109, a Christian writer who based his work on an earlier version 
of the history of the Crusades recorded a tradition that when the Crusaders broke into Jerusalem in July 1099, he said they were preceded by a rider on a white horse who galloped down for the Mount of Olives. The Crusader leaders immediately spurred their horses to follow this warrior into the city, which fell to their army as a consequence. And we now know, and he now knew as well, mm -hmm. that was a direct reference to Revelation 6-2. I looked and there was a white horse, its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. They believed that this end time prophecy had not only been fulfilled, but had been seen to be fulfilled. And, and there were a number of features of, of the quarter crusade that carried this end time subtext. The first was the idea that a march to Jerusalem, well, it would bring to mind prophetic verses concerning battles for the holy city and the ideas of confronting the armies of Antichrist. The concept of a huge battle in the last days was found in Revelation as well as the Old Testament, Armageddon. And it seemed to many medieval Christians that Gog and Magog, who we last saw as being identified as being Magyars, had in fact been loosed in the form of Islamic armies. What would happen, they thought, would be the last stand of Christian armies at Jerusalem as they faced these forces of Antichrist. Then Christ would appear. His second coming would occur on the Mount of Olives. And it's intriguing that the very, very famous English king, uh, Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, many people will have heard of Richard the Lionheart, when mm -hmm. he took part in the Third Crusade, uh, he had a conversation with, with a leading thinker of the time called uh, Joachim of Fiora about Revelation chapter 12 and the idea that the seven heads of the dragon that are found in Revelation chapter 12, represented seven powers that would persecute the church. They then decided the sixth was identified as the Islamic leader Saladin, the seventh was Antichrist, and that made Richard's role in the Third Crusade of huge importance as he, and those around him, thought it immediately preceded the end of the world. It was expected, in fact, that Antichrist would appear soon after 1194 when it was predicted that Saladin would fall from power. This he actually very, died in eleven. Very... Yeah, he actually died in eleven nine three, and of course, the second coming did not occur. That's very interesting, Martin. Because you know, going back and sorry to interrupt you, going back into okay. these two points here, and, and and I think that learning the crusade in school, we never really see that there was a relationship between end time prophecy and the reason why the crusade was established. I mean, one of the first points that you mentioned here was they following the rider on a white horse. Now, we've done extensive study on, on this Revelation chapter 6 uh, not long ago as well. And many people, you know, especially in the olden time, believed that the rider in a white horse in those days was Jesus. But actually, yes. you know, we know that the rider that John saw on the white horse is actually the rival of the Antichrist here. And it's quite interesting to see these this elements of people following this rider and then just really identifying based on the seven head in that sense who is the enemy which is quite interesting which actually created such a, 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 um, a disparity between um, the, the Islamic, Islamic system and, and, and the crusade actually what was the reason yes. people were going and the other aspect of it which obviously not be English I, I heard about Richard the, the only time I heard about Richard the Lion is, is because of the story of Robin Hood you know Robin Hood yes, yes. with Richard and yes. coming back and you know and, and so on but uh, the, the element of crusade is quite interesting so truly they were motivated by the fact that they were basically seeing end times and fulfilling the prophecy where for what they believe, am I correct? 
Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting is, as with so many what are sometimes called millenarian or apocalyptic movements before and since, the most radical end times beliefs were seen in popular expressions of crusader enthusiasm. And these mm. often involved poorly organised groups of lesser knights and peasant volunteers in contrast with the official and the usually better organised groups that were the official crusaders. And for example, mm. one of the most famous of these was the so-called People's Crusade, which started in 1096 and was led by a man called Peter the Hermit. Um, and in the early stages of this and related movements, the extreme excitement and the desire to be avenged on so-called enemies of Christ, as they called them, led to the most appalling pogroms against Jews and forced baptisms in Western German cities such as Mainz, uh, Speyer, Worms and Cologne as expressions of fanatical enthusiasm for becoming part of God's end time judgment. And mm. such murderous attacks were also launched against Jewish communities at the beginning of the Second Crusade in 1147 and the Third Crusade in 1189-90. And in fact, popular millenarian enthusiasm for crusading and, and murderous violence against Jews went hand in hand. And in fact, one of the very worst anti-Semitic massacres of the Middle Ages took place, one of them, in England, in York, in 1190, when the city's wow. entire Jewish community was trapped by an angry mob inside the Tower of York Castle. Many members of the community chose to commit suicide rather than be murdered or forcibly baptised by the attackers. And the forced conversion of the Jews was believed by many to be a way of accelerating the arrival of the second coming. Oh, there were other things going on as well. People wanted mm. to um, destroy records of what they owed this Jewish population. Uh, there, were, there, were, there, was, there was popular hatred of people that they regarded as being the alien other because they weren't Christians. But one of the factors was this passionate belief the second coming was, 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 was at hand and that they had to take on board attacks on people they regarded as the enemies of Christ. They regarded that as being Jews, terrible thing to say, terrible thing to do. But as a result of that, thousands of Jews were murdered alongside the Crusades because of end times excitement. That's interesting, Martin, you know, because this is something that is not taught at all in, in that nope. sense. And, and obviously, we they don't want to compare this to what happened as well in the 1930s and 1940s, nope. you know, where, again, the Jews yes. were uh, labelled as a scapegoat, basically, for everything yes. in that sense i mean i remember yes. you know when jews were prospering in places like germany and then suddenly when the system changed and, and hitler yes. came into power their possession were taken away their livelihood were completely destroyed and eventually they were put to death as well and it's yes. quite interesting that you kind of mention this as well during the crusade which is actually where alongside of it which is no mention but what is this interesting point you mentioned to accelerate you know, the, the end time prophecy yes. in the return of Jesus. And it's quite interesting that every time as people, we're trying to do God's work, you know, and yes. maybe it's not yes. taking place at the right time. It's not quick enough. God is not quick enough. So we take matter into our own hand and it's, it's a very, we, we're actually getting a very disastrous uh, result in that sense. Um, touching on the, the next point in, in, in your book as well, which is a quite interesting, which two be honest, I have no knowledge of this as well. So you are going to educate me on this one. Is really the relation to the, you, you, you know, you talked about there's a kind of a conflict, or I would say um, an opposition between pops and emperors. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? 
Yeah. For some, the Crusades were events that would lead to the appearance of the so-called last emperor that we have referred to. And, mm -hmm. and this person would be the ruler who'd battle the force of evil before the appearance of Christ. And so there are a number of examples of this. Uh, supporters of a man called Count Thierry of Alsace, who died in 1168, uh, in his ambitions to rule the city of Damascus at that time... Uh, uh, part of a, a Christian area because of, because of um, the ambitions of the early crusaders, or, or they hoped it would be a Christian area rather, uh, during the Second Crusade, promoted alleged prophecies that identified his family line as representing the final restraint on Antichrist. During the same crusade, a French preacher claimed that King Louis VII of France, died in 1180, was the last emperor who would conquer the entire Middle East, be a godly conqueror in the mould of the Old Testament king of Persia, Cyrus, and other leaders too were acclaimed as the last emperor or courted this role. In fact, during the First Crusade, a man called uh, Emiko of Flonheim, who led the pogroms against the Jews in the Rhineland, and then claimed that he would be the last world emperor, thought that he would reach Constantinople, Christ would crown him, and when he eventually reached Jerusalem, he would then lay down his crown for Christ. Of course, he never made it to Jerusalem. But in these ideas, people were looking to identify an emperor as the last emperor on the side of God. But this could easily be turned against emperors who the church was not happy with. So, mm -hmm. for example, when a man called Emperor Frederick II, not to be confused with Emperor Frederick I Barbarossa, who died whilst on the Third Crusade in 1190, but when the Emperor Frederick II reached the Holy Land in 1229, some people thought he was the previous emperor, Frederick I, returned. Maybe this was the last emperor. But end time speculations are complicated because mm -hmm. although Frederick II had presented himself as the last emperor, his opponents said, no, he's not the last emperor. He is, in fact, the Antichrist. And in fact, as early as 1239, Pope Gregory IX issued an encyclical titled The Beast Rising from the Sea, which mm -hmm. people will recognize as a quote from the beginning of Revelation chapter Revelation 13. Yeah. Yes, in which he declared that in Frederick II, quote, the beast filled with the names of blasphemy has risen up from the sea. For the Pope, mm. the main reason for this, why, why would the Pope do this about this Christian emperor? Well, partly because the emperor often did didn't live in a very Christian lifestyle, um, but also because the emperor opposed the Pope's authority. And it was very easy, therefore, the Pope to turn around and say, well, I think you're the Antichrist. Now, Frederick showed that two could play at this game, and he, he returned the ap apocalyptic accusation in 1239 in a letter that accused the Pope of being the rider of the red horse in Revelation <laughs> 6-4, who brings conflict to the world, and also, also, the red dragon with seven heads and ten horns of Revelation 12, 3 to 4, who is defeated by Michael and his archangels. So we've got these powerful people throwing backwards and forwards the mm. accusations of being the Antichrist, of being the beast, of being the, the, the rider on the red horse. And basically, they're simply quarrying scripture as a way of insulting each other. In fact, one of Frederick's allies, a man called Eberhard of Regensburg, who was the Prince Archbishop of Salzburg, identified, he thought, the ten horns or kingdoms of prophecy, which people mm -hmm. will, will recognise these ten horns or ten kingdoms as being, the Turks, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Africans, the Spaniards, the French, the English, the Germans, the Sicilians and the Italians, who were the inheritors of the Roman Empire. So we can see that's occurring again. And mm. in 1241, as if that wasn't enough, at the Council of Regensburg, he accused 
Pope Gregory IX of being the little horn of Daniel <laughs> 7, 8. Seven. Wonderful. The support of the Pope looked for the defeat of the Antichrist emperors when Christ returned in 1260, but Frederick died of dysentery in 1250, and the second coming did not occur in 1260. It's, it's quite interesting because all those, all those uh, names and, and dates that you mentioned as well, and we're here in, in, two, in 2022, and Christ has still not returned. We still haven't seen That's the Antichrist right. yet coming in as well. So, I mean, it's quite interesting that through centuries, people are, as you said, associated themselves, associated other to Antichrist. And, and it's quite very common you know, in today's society and even today Christian believe and, and, and doctrine believe that some people could see even today the Pope as the Antichrist as well. Yes. And it's quite interesting to scatter kind of insulting each other using the scriptures you are the antichrist no you are the antichrist yes. no you are the and it was quite very interesting now th there are division obviously there has been division along the time in, in the catholic church especially when it comes to end times um you know especially when it comes to what they believe what they don't believe as well have you got a couple of examples i think you mentioned quite a few examples in your book but have you got a couple of examples you can mention of of division in the catholic church um in relation to end time yeah, the, the official Catholic view uh, was that end time prophecy was spiritual, allegorical. It was not to be it was not to be applied to specific specific places, specific people, specific dates. Well, we can see that even the Pope wasn't playing that game. Um, that people they just found it too tempting to go in there and grab prophecy and and use it. But but one particularly striking example are the so called spiritual Francisc Franciscans or the mm. Fraticelli, the spiritual Franciscans or Fraticelli, the little brothers. Um, mm. These were a breakaway group from the Franciscan movement who were monks who just decided the established church was so corrupt and worldly there was no reforming of it. Uh, some of them mm. considered themselves the true Franciscans. Some, such as the apostolic brethren, were rooted in the laity and mm. thought that, that that there was impossible to, to 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 transform the church in any way whatsoever. But what was interesting was this group increasingly became end timed focus. So, for example, in 1300, the founder of the Apostolic Brethren, a man called Segarelli, uh, was executed, mm. and that set off a campaign of violent millenarian activism led by one called uh, Fra Dolcino in northwestern Italy against those people who were Catholic Orthodox believers, uh, feudal overlords and the wealthy, so much so that a mini crusade was launched in response. And people that followed Fra Dolcino, um, uh, many of them believed the end times were at hand. And in fact, they believed the Antichrist was the Pope. But these were Catholics saying it about another Catholic. In fact, Fra Dolcino, Father Dolcino, was captured and burnt in 1307. And interestingly enough, in 1322, about 30 of his followers were burnt in Padua. Some wow. people may have some people may have read the novel The Name of the Rose, which is a Who Done It, uh, which was published in 1980 by a man called Umberto Eco, and it's set in the aftermath of the crushing of Dolcino's movement. So, mm -hmm. if, if if anybody has read The Name of the Rose or seen the film of The Name of the Rose, and wonders what's going on, why are these Catholics at this time at each other's throats? Some of it was about end times disagreement and accusing the other of being the agents of Antichrist. Uh, the Name of the Rose is set in 1327, but of course it's a modern novel published in mm. 1980. Thank you so much for that. Now, there's one topic we actually uh, get fascinating in your book, um, is the Black Death in that sense. Yes. I mean, for those who know, um, you know, I mean, I heard story today, people trying to compare 
COVID to Black Death today. We're yes. not really near what it was. Nope. But Black Death, right. I mean, there, there was about between 75 million to 200 million deaths in, in that sense. This is worth quite, uh, quite uh, a tremendous in that one, horrific, I would say. Now, looking at Revelation chapter 6 as well, and one of the seal, one of the things that, especially looking at the force, men of the, um, the, 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 four, the four rider, you know, one of, one of the rider, which is a third and the four riders speak of pestilence and then you've got yeah. death that come after as well so it would be quite interesting to see where people were when it comes to our time where they were feeling when they were seeing so much displayed just really sweeping all over you know all over the world in us and just killing people everywhere they must have think that that's we are in the end time this is probably the, mm. the rider on the fourth the, the, that's the rider uh that's the rider on, on, on the fourth horse isn't it I would think yes. so. To be honest, it, it's not—it's not surprising. When you think the Black Death killed maybe uh, one third of the entire population of Western mm. Europe, that's one in yeah. three people. Could have been more in some areas, but let's say at mm. least one in three. That's extraordinary. And it's mm. terrible. And it's not surprising that the Black Death pandemic in the 1340s and then the Hundred Years' War that was going on at the same time and continued yes. after that between England and France mm. caused some people to interpret these events in, ap in apocalyptic ways. In 1356, mm. a Franciscan monk, for example, said that plague, social unrest and the imminent appearance of Antichrist would lead in 1367 to a godly pope and then, then the beginning of a millennium of peace under a French Holy Roman Emperor. In 1320, an uprising of the so-called uh, pastoreaux, uh, shepherds, sacked Paris as part of their demand that their king, Philip V, would go on crusade to the Holy Land. They also launched pogroms against the Jews, as had often happened in the past, and many of them, it seems, thought they could hasten the second coming by their actions. Mm. In the years following the plague's arrival in Europe, in the late 1340s, so-called flagellant movements arose in Central Europe, rapidly spread, and they were engaged in acts of self-mortification, beating and whipping themselves. They believed their pain would avert the wrath of God, as exemplified in the plague, in these end times. And it was absolutely extraordinarily terrible. And as in the early years of the Crusades, panic at plague mortality then led to mass murders of Jews. And the flagellant movement in Germany and in the Low Countries played an enthusiastic part in committing these atrocities. And so this set off a whole wave of expectation that the apocalypse was about to happen. As the Middle Ages drew to a close, the radical fervour didn't die away, it increased. The late 14th century English preacher Don Wy John Wycliffe associated the Pope with Antichrist. In 15th century Bohemia, that's in the, the, the Czech lands, the most radical wing of the Hussites, something of a sort of proto-Protestant movement, like Wycliffe's mm. Lollard followers in England, who were called the Taborites, believed their militant revolutionary activities would bring in the reign of Christ until they were bloodily defeated in 1434. In other areas, self-proclaimed messiahs arose claiming that they were the ones to defeat Antichrist, that they were Christ's representatives, perhaps even Christ himself. In Bohemia, in the year 1467, it was proclaimed that this was the year when one who called himself the anointed saviour, a staggering statement for someone to claim for himself, would establish his rule. But in 1466, it was crushed. At other times of economic and political stress, others also proclaimed the imminence of the second coming. One of these was... 
prominent in 1476 when the so-called drummer of Niklashausen near Würzburg in Germany, Hans Böhm, announced messages from the Virgin Mary. Remember, of course, he was a Catholic. Uh, these included denunciations of the clergy and the arrival of the new Jerusalem that would be centred on his hometown of Niklashausen. Thousands of peasants flocked to hear him. To crush the movement, the authorities arrested him. He was tortured and then burnt at the stake. And much of wow. this has been kicked off by the turbulence of the Black Death the previous century. It's quite interesting because as I'm listening to you and really listening to Ovenis, and we went quite through Jesus from Jesus' ascension and we now uh, about the 18th century at the moment. And, and it's quite interesting that we have seen so many people believe that the end times or the return of Jesus were in their lifestyle. And, and when we're looking quite staggering especially the black death we killed you know as you said a third of the population that probably yeah. what for me would have been one of the if i was living in those days i probably would have think that yeah we, we this is the yes. end you know pretty much yes. and yes. think that what jesus had mentioned that the time of the great tribulation would be a time that no one has ever what he says now ever experienced in that sense that it will be so much death and so much chaos in that sense, it's quite frightening because the Black Death was pretty bad. It was, yes, when it was. I say pretty bad, it was extremely Horrific. bad. And yeah. knowing that there's a greater time, much more horrific than the Black Death coming, you know, in the Great Tribulation, that is quite, it's quite, um, it's scary, you know, when you think about it. So, Listening to you and listening to all the history going through the history, I can understand why people in the old time could believe to a certain extent that it is yep. end time because of the way things has changed, because of the number of death that was taking place, mm. because of the numbers of persecution that people were going through, and also because of the number of evil emperors or evil, uh, pers- evil people in power were in that sense. So it quite is, we can understand that. However, I'm still kind of wondering are we changing the scripture? Are we reading the scripture, what God is telling us, what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 24 and 25, what Daniel tells us in the book of, of, of his book, you know, chapter 6 and 7 and 8, what Ezekiel even when he's talking about the, Gog- the, the war Gog and Magog as well in, 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 in Ezekiel 38 and, 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 and so on, and obviously the book of Revelation. There are aspects of it, as you say, you mentioned in the beginning of our podcast series that you know some of the scripture can be quite complicated as well you know but there are aspects that are very clear to us mm-hmm. so i always kind of wondering even though looking at the situation and and, and really i kind of jumping ahead of myself you know if we're looking yeah. up to today many people today are talking about end times and many people today believe that we are in end times but when i'm listening to you and hearing and and you know aspect of your book and going through end times you know believe through our centuries we nowhere near some of the some of the, some of the, the life that people will live in, the trauma no. that the people experience in the past. That's we true. nowhere near that. I mean, talking about the crusade, talking about the 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 the, the, the black death, for example. We're going now. We're going to yeah. be touching on the reformation and and so yeah. all the aspect of it. We know near it. So how can we actually believe? Or some people still believe that you know Jesus is here, Jesus return, or Jesus is coming, the Antichrist is here. When truly the bible is very clear how this man will rose into power and it's very clear the kind of system that's going to be in place during during this time as well and and it's quite interesting and i I think again you know for our listeners to be able to to get this book 
and to begin to to read it to begin to understand you know that this element of end time has been there since the time Jesus, you know, went went up, you know, Jesus' ascension. And there have been people that have been read the book and uh, read the scripture and misinterpreted the scripture because of the the situation they were in at the moment. Touching on the Reformation and, and return, you know, you're talking about this, this aspect of Reformation, which I think it was a great time of enlightening especially in in, in in church history in that sense because we went from the dark ages we went from the time where people could actually have a bible in the end because they were now people reading the bible today so they, they basically were subject to whatever was taught to them in in, in churches mm. because they were not allowed most of the people could not read but they were not allowed to carry a bible but the reformation really changed a lot of things and and as you mentioned we went through this this time when people just read the scriptures and misinterpret the scriptures but then we come into the to this to, to this time when there's a reformation and there's a return of, of believing prophecy as it is as it is written mm. as well can you give us one example of this okay well the um, j just as a, as a brief background um the invention of the printing press uh in the 15th century was like the world wide web today it, it, mm. it disseminated information it exploded information uh, the the occurrence of the reformation which was the protestants breaking away from uh the Catholic Church didn't intend to start with, but it went that way uh, in the 16th century. So you've got the invention of printing in the 15th century. Uh, you've got the Reformation taking place in the 16th century. The two things go together because the new ideas could be spread hugely, fast, really swift, more than ever before. And the Reformation really galvanized re-engagement with the detail of Scripture as the definitive statement of belief. And not surprisingly, Protestants began to read the prophecies again as historical and predictive not as spiritual and not as allegorical. So mm. futurism was back on the agenda again. Now, people had believed that in the past. They believed it through the Middle Ages, even when the official orthodoxy was not to, to, to read it that way. But now it really was back on the agenda again. And that affected groups right the way across Europe, uh, from mainstream theological statements, from people like uh, Luther and Calvin, uh, people mm -hmm. writing uh, in England, for example, and Scotland and, and, and Northern Germany and, and, and Netherlands. And, and Scandinavia, right the way through to bloody revolutionary Anabaptist uprisings, such as that which took place at Munster in Germany in 1534 to 35. So right across Europe, across Protestant Europe, there was a hugely explosive cocktail of beliefs in hunting the scriptures, searching the scriptures, but also believing that they could be seen to be interpreting what was going on in their own days. And then conflicts such as the Thirty Years' War, which many people in this country won't have heard of because it took place in Europe, but killed tens of thousands of people, 1618 to 48. The political crises that took place in Britain in the 1640s and 1650s that eventually led to the British Civil Wars. Not surprisingly, people began to look for concrete ways of understanding this within prophecy. Various attempts were made to identify the mark of the beast. Imaginative Protestant writers, for example, calculated it in numerical ways to make it represent the Pope's name. Luther, for example, accused the Pope of being the Antichrist in the 1530 edition of the mm -hmm. German Bible. Um, in other places, he said that Gog of the land of Magog. Remember, we've come across those with the Magyars. Yep. But now mm -hmm. he says, no, 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 that's the Islamic powers because he's concerned. This is Luther says this about the expansion of Ottoman of Ottoman uh, forces and Ot Ottoman influence. Some Catholics then 
threw the accusation back at him and said Luther actually is the Antichrist. In Switzerland, John Calvin said the Antichrist was the Pope. And when the King James authorised version of the Bible was published in 1611, very famous English translation of the Bible, not the first English translation, I hasten to add, but very, very famous one. It's dedication, thank the King for that's uh, King James the the first of the, the first by that name in in England anyway. Um, mm. Thank the King for identifying the Pope as the man of sin or lawlessness referred to in two Thessalonians two three. Many many studied numbers in the Bible. We've looked at this before and did mm. all sorts of calculations to name the date of the second coming, despite the warnings not to do it. Examples: sixteen fifty four, sixteen sixty six, sixteen eighty eight. 1716 were all named through the most complicated mathematical workings through the Bible and were all wrong. In England, the Cambridge-educated Thomas Brightman, who died in 1607, he's significant because in his publication, Shall They Return to Jerusalem, published in 1615, he advocated the return of the Jews to their ancestral home in the Middle Ages. And as mm. such, he was one of the first Christians to do so. So a whole range of important things are going on in the 16th and 17th century, which will make a foundation for much of what will be said in biblical study and in end time study right the way through to 2022. That's very fascinating. You know, you mentioned something that was quite interesting and, and I took notes of it when you mentioned at the time the press, you know, the, the explosion and information yes. due to the press being yeah. released. And, and I can't stop you know, making a comparison with the explosion of internet and technology yes. today, 4 or 5G, yeah. which is allow people now to spread the message. So they're not only spreading message um, of, of hope or message of our end time, they're also bringing prophetic words. So I, I watch on YouTube sometimes, and there's a lot of not prophets now coming up on YouTube and I'm just declaring the word of God in that sense. And there's so much information today as well that it is easy for us to be misled as well like people yes. were misled in those times as well and, and i think yes. it's very important for us to be very careful but oh i would be very very uh, discerning you know you know we really got to ask the holy spirit for this, this discerning to 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 know the scripture to really know what what god is saying what jesus is saying in our scriptures and and i think that i never thought that the way you mentioned it and the way you wrote it that history could actually you know the, the kind of understanding the history through the beginning up to 2022 as we're going to look at our last podcast before we're having our panel discussion in that sense how important it is to understand how people were thinking in those days and it's not like they just wanted to think this way the circumstances kind of dictated the way they were yes. thinking because yes. i mean you think you think about it even in the first century when john wrote obviously john wrote the book of revelation and the the church was going through tremendous persecution in those times as well. indeed and uh, you know some of the reason they were written i think they were written in a certain the book of revelation was written in a certain way because they wanted to make sure that this word were understood by the christian but not by the roman as well because of this domination so when the book and it was also a time to give people hope and not just the people believe yes. that they believe in yes. those days that jesus was coming back as well and we're looking yes. back two thousand years later jesus is still not here and you know persecution has been going for, for centuries and as yes. you said there's been a lot of things that has been said. We spoke about many things as well. And we understand now 
why it was easy for people to misinterpret the scripture because of what they were seeing they were under the understanding that this is it but touching touch on the reformation which i think has been one you know one a great time as well especially luther and and calvin yeah. and all those people that were able now to begin to bring the scripture yeah. back to the people as well in that sense and now we, we're going to this next phase of your book which is two aspects of it that i want us to touch this together one of them is about you touch on it a little bit about the civil wars in that sense yes. and believe the new jerusalem and also the time of disappointment and i want to yes. kind of understand the aspect of your book why those aspects has been mentioned in your book in terms of the the the, the, the pavilion and the civil war the, the building the new jerusalem we know that there will be a new Jerusalem because the book of Revelation is saying in, in the chapter 21 and 22 when he said there's a new heaven, a new heaven, and then we see the Jerusalem coming through. But why is the building of a new Jerusalem? Who, who was building the new Jerusalem in that sense? Yeah, well, as we've said, the two centuries after the invention of the printing press saw an explosion of end-time pamphlets, end-times books, end-times writing, which are directly comparable to the explosion of social media and algorithms amplifying and, 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 and increasing people's awareness of things today. There really is a parallel between the two. And in the 1640s and 1650s, in the British Isles, royal control broke down during the civil wars. And during this time of upheaval, millionaires preaching accelerated to the most extraordinary degree. As on the continental mainland earlier, apocalyptic politics were energised by the re-emphasising of the literal reading of prophecy, but also by seeking to see them rooted in what was going on around them. Many Puritans, for example, in the 1640s saw Charles I, who was executed in 1649, beheaded uh, in Whitehall in London, as the little horn of Daniel 7. In fact, one group, the Fifth Monarchists, a revolutionary group, took their name from the four kingdoms in Daniel and believed it was their job to establish Christ's kingdom on earth the fifth monarchy as they called it the fifth kingdom then he would return and they'd rule with him they first of all hoped oliver cromwell would assist them they then grew disillusioned in fact in england in 1653 there was even a failed attempt by oliver cromwell to establish a theocratic parliament as a response to these beliefs and what we see is in england uh, well, I say England, actually, I should say Britain, of course, because it was the British civil wars that went right across the British Isles, affected Scotland, Wales, Ireland, with terrible casualties, England, of course. The British civil wars were a huge time of upheaval and end times accusations and end times enthusiasm and end times beliefs were very, very strong. And many of those who in the 1650s had taken up arms against the king in the 1640s and won, believed that now was the time that they were going to build the new Jerusalem on earth in Britain uh, and that from there Christ's kingdom would spread across the whole of Europe and beyond and Christ would return. In fact, when, when Oliver Cromwell uh, addressed Parliament in 1653, he started with these extraordinary words, you stand at the edge of of promises and prophecies and he genuinely believed it mm, this is quite fascinating talk, talk, talk to us about this time of disappointment in in that sense yeah what what what, the, what why you mentioned the time of disappointment in, in your book is that because we've got we've we've go f we yeah. we go from the reform reformation we go from the return of belief in prophecy as you said the implosion of information now just a really pamphlet and so on which civil wars 
Nigerian resilience. And then we seem to kind of go back to this point when, you know, people still don't understand the, the prophecy, don't understand, and then still kind of change things or read a word or read a scripture and then trying to apply to a situation or circumstances which is actually doesn't reflect what the word of god is saying about prophecy yeah. so what yeah. is it well basically in 1640s and 1650s so many enthusiastic protestants in this country were making such specific statements concrete statements it's this year it's this person it's going to happen that when the Stuart monarchy was restored uh in 1660 in the form of charles ii it was a really profound shock because clearly all they said was wrong and in fact one person at the time who who opposed them bitterly said these words the lord has spat in their faces wow now yeah, that was how their enemies saw them. They said, you claimed all this in the 1650s. You killed a king. You did all this. And look, you were wrong. God has judged against you. And in fact, on his way to his execution, a bystander shouted at a man called uh, ex-major general and fifth monarchist. Remember those, the fifth monarchist, Thomas mm -hmm. Harrison. He yelled at him. This man was going to be hanged, drawn and quartered. Where now is your good old cause? In other words, what was it all about? And some accounts indicate he claimed, this is Harrison, that he would soon return with Christ to judge those who had so recently judged and condemned him to death. But it didn't happen. In 1661, there were some more fifth monarchists who attempted to lead an uprising in London against Charles II. Um, others took part in what's called the Monmouth Revolt in the West, in the West Country in 1685. Both were defeated. And so in England, there occurred something that was in many ways a huge time of disappointment. And many people retreated from attempting to understand and explore prophecy because they got it so badly wrong. But across the Atlantic, something different was happening because Puritan settlers in North America imagined themselves as a new Jerusalem crossing the Jordan River, the Atlantic Ocean, embarking on a 17th century exodus, leaving sinful Babylon or Egypt behind them. They spoke of a New England Canaan as part of their reimagining of themselves in the role of wow. God's chosen people and a new promised land. They then said the indigenous people, the Native Americans, were just idolaters, slated for extermination. And that was quite extraordinary. They began to apply end times prophecies to their settlement of America. But there was also a futurist and an eschatological aspect to this as well. For some of them began to say that North America had become a new sacred space within God's plan for history. In this sense, it was an American Israel. And we still find that very prominent amongst um, US mm. evangelicals today, playing a key role in the events leading to the second coming of Christ. In fact, a man called Increased Mather in 1676 saw America as a forerunner of the New Jerusalem. Another man called uh, Samuel Sewell in 1697 thought, quote, the seat of the divine metropolis where Christ is going to rule might be in North America, not the Middle East. So not Jerusalem, maybe Boston. And so this kind of was, was, was a kind of replacement theology again, where they saw themselves as having replaced the Jews. But some Puritan preachers didn't subscribe fully to this American Israel mm -hmm. construct and looked instead for the conversion of the original Israel, the Jews, and their return to the Middle East as a key component mm -hmm. of the end times. So in America, 
key features of end times belief continued to influence ideas well into the 18th century. And many of the features of the 21st century evangelical movement in the USA, influencing its national as well as its end times outlook, can be traced back to those formative years of the mid-17th and 18th century. In fact, in the 18th century, some Americans even used prophetic text to justify the rebellion against King George III in the American Revolution. But, wow. as we'll see next podcast, it was in the 19th century that the next great developments in prophecy thinking would occur. That's wonderful, Martin. Love it how you hand up and just lead it up to the next podcast for next time. This is wonderful time. I mean, Martin, I'm just blown away by all this information and all the historical fact that you just brought into, into this series, really to make us really understand prophecies in a better way, but also understand uh, how people mislead scriptures and how people believed in end times or people believed that Jesus was returning even back from the beginning. Now, we're going to stop now here and we've come back next time for our third podcast and last podcast in the series and we're going to be looking from the 19th century all the way to 2022 so guys please stay tuned and enjoy and we'll see you again next week this is jean-marc and this is revelation hour in focus with martin waiter see you later